Guys, so excited to be with you gathering in person as well as online. So if you're at your couch, you're in a comfy, lazy boy, kick that recliner back, get comfortable if you're here in person. But let's start by praying. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the chance that we have, like every gathering, every time, every day, to remind ourselves of you. Would you use this to grow in me a love for you, to grow a love in your people for you? Father, for the folks who are coming here who who don't know you or wrestle with you or are wondering whether or not you're true, you're kind, any of this makes any sense. If you're just a kind fable like everything that you might hear growing up in kids' stories, or if you're the creator of the universe and the savior of the world, would you change hearts? Would you show us that you are true? I can't do that. Only you can do that. Would you remind me? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, so excited to be with you. My name's John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs, and welcome. I want to start out today with a joke. It's not a very good joke, so I want to set you up for that. So folks at home, here's my joke. All right. There's a priest, a pastor, I'm already excited, a priest, a pastor, and a rabbi, right? They're all representing, obviously, different faith traditions, but they're in the same town together, same community, but they've become friends. There's this ecumenical gathering. They know each other. They care about each other. Every year, to get away from the hustle and the bustle of the city, all the people, they would take this camping trip. Now, this camping trip, it was down this road, and they'd come to the end of it. You could walk and hike to it. That's where they'd set up tent. Their first night there, they sit there, they build a fire, they're eating food, and they start talking with one another. And they have this conversation where they end up doing what priests and rabbis and pastors shouldn't do, but they end up comparing against one another, where they start almost using this silly language of, hey, I'm better at converting anyone or anything than you. No, 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 I'm better at converting anyone or anything than you. So the priest, the pastor, the rabbi, they say, all right. Let's go do it. This forest that they so happened to be in had a lot of bears, right? So they decide, all right, we're going to take two hours. In two hours, we'll go out. We'll convert who we can. Then we'll come back. We'll tell stories. So the priest goes. The pastor goes. The rabbi goes. About two hours go by. They walk out. The priest finds the road first. He starts walking back towards the campsite. Then he runs into the pastor. They're walking back towards the campsite. The priest turns to the pastor and he says, hey, here's what you need to know. I found a bear and I led this bear in their first confession, receiving the Eucharist. It was this beautiful, holy moment with God. That's the priest to the pastor. The pastor says, well, hey, I went and I found a river. And in the river, I saw a bear. The bear was fishing. As the bear was fishing, I led the bear to Jesus Christ, baptized him by the power of God, raised from dead. Bear believes. They're walking back. They're like, man, where's the rabbi? But I'm the rabbi. All of a sudden, as they continue walking down that road, they start to see like red lights, blue lights. They get a little worried. They get a little nervous. They get up to the campsite. They see EMT is there. People are there. But they're not like overly hurried so they know, okay, something bad's happened, but people are okay. They walk up to the back of the ambulance. They kind of open the doors. The rabbi's there on that stretcher. The rabbi leans forward, sticks his head up, looks at his friend, the priest and the pastor, and says, I found a bear. I should not have led with circumcision. (laughs) Yeah, people at home or kids, if you don't know what that is, it's an act of faith, it's the Old Testament, mommy and daddy can tell you later, right? It's this silly story. I know it's ridiculous. I've always enjoyed it, though. But the reason I've thought about that story is because it proves this point, right? As silly as it is, what we 
believe has consequences. What we believe has consequences. Now, in America in general, when we say the word consequences, we tend to think of only the negative. Today I'm going to use that word. I don't mean it as just negative. I also mean it as positive. It's cause and effect. Wonderful things can come from it. But what's true, whether you believe in God, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, or you don't, you have beliefs, and those beliefs have impacted your life. The reason I start with this is we're working our way through the book of 2 Timothy. It's this beautiful letter in the library of Scripture where the Apostle Paul, this pastor, this teacher, this church planter, this missionary, is writing a letter to a church leader named Timothy in the town of Ephesus. And he's writing him about how to be faithful and encourage and lead in the midst of difficulty and opposition. And he's going to remind Timothy for his own life and then for the lives of the community in the city in which he is. He's going to remind him, beliefs have consequences. To say it differently, today I want to talk with us about how truth has consequences. Truth has consequences, both positive as well as the potential for negative. And here's why I think we need this so much. Our world right now, and this is true if you believe in God or not, our world right now, generally culture, it comes and it has two contrasting, warring things going on within it. The first one, and if you've studied it, you would know, it's a postmodern society. What that means is generally the concept of truth itself. People say things like, man, you can't really know truth. Or, hey, well, what's true for you is not true for me. No one can really know the truth. Which, by the way, it's self-contradictory. It's a truth claim. We'll save that for another time. But that's one aspect of our culture. But then the second aspect of our culture, especially right now, everything going on, COVID, George Floyd, racism, Imago Day, finances, social justice issues, how we care for one another, we are in desperate need of knowing the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. What happens when you remove? You can't know truth. All of a sudden, it gets real tricky in knowing, well, truth tells what's the difference between right and wrong, good from evil, truth and falsehood. And in a world where you look around and you see we are in desperate need of what truth says regarding finances, the nuclear family, race made in the image of God, anxiety, all of it. We say truth isn't real, yet we are in desperate need of it. Why does this matter? Truth has consequences. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're starting, actually, part one of a two-part talk. I wanted to do it in one, but those of you who've been around here for a while, I just couldn't do it. We would have been here for like three hours, right? But a, a one-part talk where we are going to look at how truth has consequences for your life and for mine. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The, the context holy is verses 14 through 26, but today we're going to look at just 14 through 21. And as we talk about it, in, in the midst of this two-weekend series, we're going to talk about how because truth has consequences, what must we do? And when I say this we, I'm talking about the church. Remember who Paul is writing to, a church leader. What are you if you believe in Jesus Christ? A church 
leader, a leader of God's people. What, do we meant, what are we meant to do? Stand with truth. So grab your Bible. I'm going to start in verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have it, it'll be up on the screen. Excited to keep going. I'm going to read all the way through 26. And then we're going to work our way. Paul to Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Anyone been on Facebook recently? No? Okay. All right, more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Upsetting can also be translated ruining, destroying the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is going to be where we stop today, but, but I want to finish it out. That way we all have the full context. So, in light of truth, what must we, those who believe in God, do? We must. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Now, I'm not even going to teach on that, but that's exactly what some of you needed to hear today. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snares of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Truth has consequences. I love the Apostle Paul. He's writing this letter from a dungeon. See, he'd lived his life after he came to know Jesus Christ. He lived his life representing, proclaiming, preaching, and teaching truth. Capital T, God alone knows it, truth. And because of it, he'd been placed in a prison cell, and he's right now awaiting his execution. Truth has consequences. So as we think about this first part, 14 through 21, we're going to work our way through it. What I want to show us there is what are we, believers in Jesus Christ, and then even if you don't believe, here's why I'm praying that you do. What are we meant to do? We are meant to stand in truth. Stand in truth. Next week, we're going to talk about how once we stand in truth, what does that do? We live in truth. So jumping back up to verse 14, I, I want to work through this 14 through 16. Paul, he's going to do something. He's going to show us three ways that believers in Christ, here's how we are meant to represent 
to show, to preach, to contend on behalf of truth. And remember, it matters, man. Because Paul, he's writing this to Timothy in the midst of a context where people said all kinds of things. Ephesus was in the shadow of Mount Olympus, about 100 miles away. People could have seen different gods. It's Greek culture. You believe in anything, always up the mountain. That culture was this one. And Paul's saying, no, remind them, charge them. That's where he starts, verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. As we look at verse 14, and we see three ways that Paul is saying how believers in God represent truth. First one he says is, hey, you got to stand with truth, but you don't quarrel with it. You stand with truth, but you don't quarrel with it. Let me show you what I mean by that. Who here knows the difference between a discussion and an argument? Right? Siblings at home, let me ask you, do you know the difference between talking with your sibling and straight up fighting and arguing with your sibling? I bet your parents can tell the difference. But even between adults, it's almost one of those things where you know the difference when you see it. I want to give two key themes that Paul's pulling out here. Even as we go to represent truth, Paul's giving us permission to say, hey, there's times where who you talk to, they're just not ready for it in that moment. The difference, a discussion, it's generally calm. And there's this theme behind it. When you discuss something, you are seeking generally to understand. Right? You're trying hard to hear. When you're quarreling, it's far often not calm. Pride is on the line. There's defensiveness. All of a sudden, it's gotten way too emotionally involved. Perhaps it's escalated. And you're not seeking to understand you're not seeking to hear. You're seeking to be understood. You are seeking to be heard. When it comes to representing truth, the first thing Paul is saying with Timmy, you need to remind people, remind the church that when they go to represent it, some people just don't want to hear it. I recently on a vacation, I watched a great movie. I'm sure some of y'all have seen it. A Few Good Men. It's like Tom Cruise. He does this great job. Jack Nicholas. Yeah, right? They're sitting there, and, and he's engaging. He's in the moment. If you haven't seen it, there's this famous line. Oh, I got it mixed up with a golfer. I always do that. Sorry, guys. Been a long week, right? But he's sitting there, and he yells back at a young Tom Cruise as Tom Cruise is asking him these questions about the truth, trying to get to this case of what's going on. And he yells back at a young Tom Cruise. He says, you can't handle the truth. Now, besides the movie, there's a truth in that statement. There are some people who in this present moment, they cannot handle the truth. Their heart is quarrelsome. It is divisive. Hey, Christian, that must not be you. That must not be me. Next week, we'll talk about how Christians, you address untruths, you address what's false, but you do it with gentleness. It matters so much, not just what you say, but how you say it. This is why your, your Bible's full of moments where even in the Proverbs, it's 26, we don't have time to go there, where it says, don't you answer a fool according to their folly. A fool is someone who all they want to do is speak, never listen. And then right after that, your Bible says, but answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. We don't sink to the moment of quarreling, but we always Stand in truth. 
verse 15. This is like a, a capstone verse. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Well, what's the call here, how we represent it? We rightly handle it. The word of truth, th- this is speaking to. The truth of God's word, Old Testament, New Testament, how Jesus conjoined the reality of Scripture with the promise of the Gospels in his life, and then the promise the Holy Spirit will inspire the authorship to come. It's this. I love rightly divide. It's a carpentry term. I'm terrible at uh, handyman projects. Like this past weekend, I had to fix um, an opening like closet door Literally, there's a moment I had to ask my wife to come in, and in the middle of it, I like had to stop and like catch my breath as I looked at her, and I said, it is amazing how literally internally violent I can get when like projects don't go the right way. This term would have been used of a carpenter. Rightly dividing literally means to cut it straight. Because if you don't cut it straight, what happens? The whole thing's off balance. If it's off balance, it does not stand. And he's saying you have to rightly divide, which means you have to read it, you have to know it, you have to study it, never in isolation, in conjunction with community, God-fearing people, recognizing we enter a church history and lineage 2,000 years long. So if you come to a unique and new revelation, be warned. You rightly divide it. Because what's at stake? You see the language here? And this is language, especially in America. We don't like this. Approval or ashamed. Not that it takes away from salvation and coming before God, though a misuse of truth could, and we'll talk about that. But approval or ashamed. One of the things Jesus says in his first sermon when he goes public, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior. It's Matthew 5. Just before the verses I'm going to read to you guys, he talks about the authority of God's word, how it's all true. And then he talks to how people should use it, how they should stand in truth. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that's the word of God, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Ashamed. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Truth has consequences. How you navigate this has consequences in this life as well as in the next. Do you earn your salvation with God? Is there anything you could do to work for it? No. But the way some people divide this, they would say, yes, you do. You do work for it. It is a belief and it is a behavior. That is a lie. There are some in how they would divide this. They would say, hey, unless you're baptized, you cannot go to heaven with God. That is a lie. There are those that would say, if you sincerely believe in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, you've been saved. Do all you can to keep it because you might lose it. You cannot lose true saving faith. Anything different is a lie. The thought that a terrifying place that we can't begin to describe like hell 
It's not literal. It's not a location. It's not a place the way Jesus described it. It's a parable. It's an illustration. It's a simile. That is a lie. For salvation, truth can have consequences. For the longest time, I thought I had to work my way to God. It had huge consequences on my life. And it wasn't until, by God's grace, he showed, no, man, I love you. I'll forgive you as you are. You stop working. Believe, John. It changed everything. Do you see that? Now we stand with that. You represent that. It is never loving or kind to water down what God has made clear. You rightly divide it. We are in the midst of a time and a culture that desperately needs truth. What's the third way that we as followers of Christ, we we represent it? It's verses 16 and 17. But avoid irreverent babble. That, That could literally be godless chatter. Love that. Irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he starts to give examples. The third way that we represent this truth is we avoid false teachers. We avoid false teaching. The word there is literally avoid. It means to separate, and it describes it like gangrene. Gangrene, this would have been like where you lose nerve endings and your nerves start to die. It's a bacteria that spreads through your body, and if you don't stop it, it will kill you. So first century, if you had gangrene in a finger, what was the solution? What was the cure? Cut off the arm. When he says, what should Christians do with false teaching? Avoid it. Separate from it. Take the arm. Why? It spreads. What does it spread? He, he gives the language into more and more ungodliness. There have been times in my life where I have, out of insecurity, weakness, foolishness, given way to what was false, even though I knew what was truth. In those moments, do you know what I become responsible for, complicit with? Spreading of ungodliness like gangrene. We all know in major diseases, right, in particular cancer and the tragedy that plays in our, in our fallen world, first question you want to ask is, has it spread? Why? Because you're looking to identify it and then to remove the mass in its entirety. You don't leave any of it. Here's the theme. This is serious. Truth has consequences. Your theology, your thought of theo, God, ology, study of, it matters. Every person, whether or not they believe in God or have a faith, is a theologian. Y'all track with that. And truth has consequences. That's why we don't entertain false teachers. It's why we avoid it in its entirety. Those are three things that we're supposed to do to stand with truth. Now, Paul, he's going to give us a reminder, why does it matter? And he's going to give three examples. I love this. It's like he's doubling down. He's doubling down. He's doubling down to show Timothy and to show you and me. I know this is hard, but here's why this matters. Stand with truth, and you don't decide truth. Truth has been provided, and truth has a name. But let's keep looking. Verses 16 and 18, I'm going to start there again, but we're going to go down through 19 now. But avoid irreverent babble, godless chatter. 
It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. That's why we are against this, and now he'll give examples. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the faith, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Hymenaeus and Philetus, this is our first example. They are false teachers with a false teaching. In practice, what they're saying is the bodily resurrection, which is something that will occur in the future, they're saying it had already happened. That false teaching, what was its consequence? It was upsetting the faith of some. We don't have time to fully break it down, but upsetting there, if you remember, it means ruining, destroying. The consequences of false truth and bad teaching is not just that it impacts me, it influences and impacts others. The untruths or the lies that you believe hurt you and they hurt others. A buddy of mine, his daughter, he's a, she's about to turn 13 and he made this joke, which I get. He said, yeah, man, I'm thinking about just moving to Montana. Why Montana? Because I could get out in the middle of nowhere and there's no other teenage boys. Like wants to separate teenage girl from teenage boys, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'd create total trauma in her life and she'd need therapy for the rest of it. But whatever, I'll pick my problems. We won't pay for college, we'll pay for that, right? That's the whole approach. Here's the thing. What's the core of what's really going on there? Does truth have consequences? How do you disciple the generation behind you on the role of dating? What is the biblical role of dating? How do you disciple the generation you're in or behind you on the role of marriage. So the 13 approach dating, right? The way so often many do, well, hey, if he likes me, that could be nice. And who knows? It's really innocent. All they do is write each other notes. Nothing comes of it. Or is there an instilled mindset? You date for the purpose of marriage. Do you come, even outside of his daughter? Do we come? And how truth, how much does God mean it when he says, hey, marriage Hey, husbands, here's what truth would say. If you're a believer, here's what truth would say. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do your kids see you lead that way at home? Are you standing in that truth? You want to set someone up to date well? Show them what it looks like to love well and be loved well. Do you see how truth has consequences? Not just in salvation, but in how we live. Is there freedom in how we carry that out? Of course. Does the Bible mean it when it says, outside of the confines of marriage, men are to treat women, even those whom they date, in all purity? Right before it, it says that as sisters. Does it mean that? Does it mean that? Or is it, no, 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 I don't know if that's what it means. Or, hey, that was like first century patriarchal culture. That's crazy. That's legalism. Jesus would want me to be happy. Jesus wants you to be happy, but truth calls you to be holy. There's freedom in how we navigate this, guys. But do you see where truth is firm? It's firm. It's an example. Hymenaeus and Philetus, they were false teachers. He's going to another example right there in verse 19. I love this. I love the Bible. But God's firm foundation stands. We're going to example number two. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Right here, what Paul's doing, he's going Old Testament. He's going Old Testament, and Timothy would have known this. He's reaching back into the history of Israel, and he's talking about a rebellion. So Moses, he was the leader of Israel during this time. 
there was a rebellion led by Korah. Korah was this leader that said, hey, God doesn't want to lead through Moses. God wants to lead through me. True teacher, Moses. False teaching, Korah. Moses, go back, read it. It's number 16. It's amazing. He says, okay, maybe you're right. How about this? We'll let God decide. And Moses literally splits people up like you're picking a dodgeball team growing up. Like, all right, this team over here, Korah, his team over there. And then he says, let God judge what's true teaching, what's false. To demonstrate how seriously God takes false teaching, untruths, lies. You know what happens to that rebellion? Supernaturally, God literally opens the earth, swallows some of them, and closes it. Then, fire rains down. Did he literally open the earth? Look at me online. Yes. Did he literally rain fire? Yes. What should that mean to you and to me? Our untruths, what we believe, can really hurt us. And the honest reality is, I am responsible for what I hold to be true. Do you see God, his pleading heart? That's why he's literally appealing by the power of the Spirit through Paul to Timothy. His pleading heart is believe, trust, depend, follow me. I'm a good father. I'll take care of you. My way's better. I'm not cruel. You could trust me. He's pleading with that. Yet in my defiance, as a follower of Christ, I will be disciplined for my false teaching. Spreads. And if people die apart from God, they will face judgment. Truth has consequences. This is not a popular message. Christianity, in my opinion, it's still kind of, depending on the region, it used to be the quote-unquote kind of moral majority, and we were the majority. We more and more have to be okay with the fact Christianity has become the minority view Claiming truth is real, that you must rightly divide it. You are accountable for it. God has given it. You don't self-discover it. He preached it. That is a minority view. Church, stand in truth. Let's look at the third example. Third. This is uh, 20 through 21. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, so rich person's house, right? Gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And here's the goal. What's our goal, guys, if you believe in Jesus? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for what is, or excuse me, he will be a vessel for honorable use. If you're a believer in Jesus, you want to be the vessel for honorable use. How do you do that? You cleanse yourself from what's dishonorable. You rightly divide truth. You apply it to your own life. And then what does God want to do with that? Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. When God calls himself master and us, those who believe servant, did he mean it? Yeah. When he calls himself father, provider, protector, cherisher, did he mean it? Yeah. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Guys, the third thing that's true about why this matters 
why this matters that we stand in truth because truth has consequences. It's because God wants you to be used for honorable means, honorable purposes. God wants your life marked by honor, not dishonor. And guess who defines what's honorable? He does. Not family, not friends, not the city you live in, not the voting patterns of our county or this state or this nation, not your political leaders, not media. He did. We stand in truth. He uses this man, honorable and dishonorable houses. They have vessels. Remember, he said gold and silver, wood and clay. Gold and silver, obviously, those are for all the nice things, right? That's where you put all like the fancy stuff. Wood and clay. First century, what would those have been used for? Two things. Two things. Especially if you're in a house that could even afford gold and silver. Trash or excrement. For all my little kids at home, hey, Lily, that means where you go potty. To have false teaching is to literally be the basin in which filth resides. What do we do? By the power of God, you cleanse it. The final theme, I love how it started in verse 15. It says, do your best. So many times people take that as an excuse for there's freedom of interpretation, and we're going to talk about that. But what it speaks to is God knows how difficult it can be. That's why you never do this alone. You do this in the context of community. You do this acknowledging saints who have gone before you in the orthodox truth of God's word. You do this knowing you are not the first and you will not be the last one who to stand with truth means people don't like you, respect you, call you uneducated, ignorant, dumb, foolish. You join the family heritage who say, what is true to God may be foolishness to you. But I'm with him because he saved me. Let me share a few things about why this matters so much. As I said, we're in the midst of a culture, postmodern, truth isn't real, how can you know it? Believers in Jesus Christ, we have to then examine, okay, well, what was Jesus' relationship to truth? I want to give you three quick examples. Here's why this matters so much. The world says you can't know truth. Here's what Jesus says about truth. And I'm just going to pick one of his biographies. There's three others I could have pulled from. Book of John. You don't have to turn there. I'll read these. In John 8, verse 31 through 32, here's what Jesus says about his relationship with truth, which should inform ours. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Why must we stand in truth for our life as well as on behalf of others? What's at stake? freedom. John 14, 6, he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why must we stand in truth according to Jesus? He is truth, truth incarnate, truth has a name. He died for them and he died for me. What's at stake? Relationship, intimacy with God. That abundant life where people put their head on the pillow and they know, yes, nothing in this life will ever fully be there. But there's a life that awaits. And in that, I hope. Third one, 
Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What's at stake? Sanctify, it means for us to grow to be more like Jesus. My growth in becoming more Christ-like, more kind, more loving, more thoughtful, more gracious, more patient, more tender, more cherishing of my wife, more discerning of this body, it hinges on what he says is true. What's at stake? Future growth. Truth has consequences. Our relationship with truth as believers is completely different than the world's. But how has this impacted the church? And I mean the people of God. How has this impacted perhaps you and me? We've talked about some of the ways that it can impact salvation. Right? How these false truths can creep in. Or people can come and when Jesus says, for example, as he's writing through Paul, there is no other name, or excuse me, through Luke, spoken. There's no other name given among men by which you must be saved. We can start to try to walk that back and we say, well, hey, well, that was then or there was something unique. That's how it applies to salvation. But we've seen those are lies. Those are untruths. There's a God in heaven who loves you. He died for you. He is three in one. By the moment of faith, you need no more power of the Holy Spirit in your life than the moment you believe. You are secured. Your relationship with him is not conditional. You can't lose it. You're a son your daughter. But how does it impact the way we live? Because this, this creeps into the church. It creeps into my life. There's a quote by Mark Twain I want to read that I think influences a lot of this. Mark Twain, right? He, he's, he's famous. says here he, he's known to have quipped, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that disturb me. Rather, at times, it's the parts of the Bible I do understand that disturb me. How has this impacted the church There are times where we don't like what God says, so we want to change it. Let me share with you a a few thoughts. What is the number one job of a parent? Perhaps you might view it as, well, hey, I want to provide, I want to give a good life, create well-rounded, go to college, get a good job, get married, live a decent life, so they can be mediocre in happiness. That's one view. Second view. To love the Lord my God into by the grace of God instill and impress that into the souls of my children to raise them up and send them out as arrows. How has culture impacted what we believe is true? What about the role of your marriage? Like if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a believer, do you know that your marriage is meant to be a display of the most unconditional, merciful, compassionate, them first love on the planet? How does it impact a view of divorce? You see? Rightly divide. It matters. It matters. What about finances? Stewardship. If the Bible says it's better to give than to receive, did he really mean that? Is sacrificial stewardship the mark of a follower of Jesus because they know God sacrificed everything for me? Whether you are filthy rich or blatantly poor, did he really mean it? Did he really mean it? Are you called to be an evangelist in how you share your faith? Are you called to represent righteousness and truth even when other people don't want you to? Even when other people say that you shouldn't? 
Like, have you come and still, even though George Floyd, there's spent time, are you just as committed to the reality of Imago Day, or was it with a news cycle? I like when things get calmer. I like when there's not controversy. But I stand with truth. Does that mean I stand with everything that's been attached to that movement? No. But I always stand with truth. Why? That's what Christ has done for me. What about when it comes to sexuality, gender orientation? When the Christian ethic outside of marriage is you find a joy and a faithfulness and a discipline in God. And apart from marriage, what that can then lead to is a Christian life is marked by contentment in Him and self-denial. Are you okay if they look at you and they say, wait, your sexual ethic is repression? I trust God. Gender orientation. My daughter this past week yesterday, she told me, uh, it's, she told me, uh, what'd she say? Dogs can drive. She told me that. We're driving to Lowe's on my way to that handyman project I was terrible at. Dogs can drive. And the next thing she said, trees can walk. At what age should I begin to honor her determining her own gender? Does she even have that choice? Or has God chosen it for her? You see how controversial it is? You see how we all kind of get nervous and you at home, some of you maybe even checked out or now I'm terrible? Truth matters. Do you just beat people over the head with it? No, you're loving, you're gentle, knowing apart from God, we can't do any of it. But we don't decide, we stand with it. I'm gonna close by reading a passage from this book I've been working through. Um, it, it just references, it references our relationship with truth, right? It's an it's a excerpt from this book. It's called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. I'd recommend it to you. But there's this illustration that the author uses from Lee Strobel. Lee, Lee Strobel, if you don't know who he is, he wrote The Case for Christ, right? He's going to set up how even in the church we can come and we try to mess with truth as well as those outside. Let me read this to you. It's one page, so it's a little bit longer. Lee Strobel comes and he gives this illustration to people who come and say, I don't know if that's really what God says. I don't know if that's really what truth means. I don't know if that's really what applies. He sets it up this way. He says, pretend your daughter, pretend you have a daughter if you don't have one, right? Your daughter and her boyfriend, they're going to go out for a Coke on a school night. Seems pretty innocent. Coke on a school night. And you say to her, sweetheart, you must be home before 11. Now, let's say the boyfriend and the girlfriend, they go out on their evening. Now, suppose it gets to be 1045. The two of them, they're still having a great time. They don't want the evening to end. So suddenly, they begin to have difficulty interpreting your instructions. Y'all ever done that? Yeah, okay. I'm a phenomenal rationalizer. Be careful. They say to one another, what did your dad really mean when he said, you must be home before 11. Did he literally mean us? Or was he talking about you in a general sense, like people in general? Was he saying, in effect, is a general rule, people should be home before 11? Or was he just making the observation that generally people are in their homes before 11? I mean, he wasn't very clear, was he? Next one, they keep talking. And what did your dad mean by you 
must be home before 11. Would a loving father be so demanding? Would a loving father be so adamant, inflexible, wooden, and narrow-minded? He probably meant it as a suggestion. I know he loves me, so isn't it implicit that he wants me to have a good time? And if I'm having fun, then he wouldn't want me to end that fun. Again, what did he mean by you must be home before 11? He didn't specify whose home. It could be anybody's home. Maybe he meant it figuratively. Remember the old saying, home is where the heart is? My heart is right here, out having a Coke with you. So doesn't that mean I'm already home? One more. What did he mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he mean that in an exact literal sense? Or is time a social construct that has been applied to humanity based on a culture of patriarchy that we need to remove ourselves from? He didn't say all of that in here, but did he really mean an exact literal sense? Besides, he never specified 11 p.m. or 11 a.m. And he wasn't really clear on if he's talking about Central Standard Time, Eastern Standard Time. I mean, aren't we on like a global clock here? I mean, it's still only a quarter to seven in Honolulu. So when you think about it, it's always before 11 o'clock somewhere. Whatever time it is. Oh, so with all these ambiguities, all this confusion, we can't really be sure what he meant at all. If he can't make himself more clear, we certainly can't be held responsible. I know none of you have ever done that. I know none of us would ever think that, where we come and we take God's clear, plain, and as we'll learn in a couple weeks, breathed out that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, plain reading language, and twist it, turn it, and bend it. If you wonder, how do we fight against this? come back next week. We'll talk about how you must know this, apply this, interpret this. But here's what you need to know. How do you, how do you go home at 11, even when you don't understand it, even when you don't know why? You trust the Father who asks you to come home. You believe that father sent his son to die on your behalf for all of your foolishness, your doubt, my misdeeds, my bad theology, my inability at times to try hard but to not rightly divide. He paid the penalty for all of it. You trust that father. And you say, he loves me. If I don't follow him, where else am I going to go? He is the only one with the words of eternal life. Truth has consequences. Stand with it. Join us next week as we talk about the application and how we live in truth. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you bring truth to people. God, the first truth I'd ask you'd bring is you'd set souls free. You'd transform them, lead them by the power of your spirit into a knowledge and a love of you. We can't do that. We love watching you do that, though. And God, we want to be useful to you. So if you want to use us, do it. But Lord, make us a people who are firm where your word is firm, who are flexible where it's flexible, that you are truth and we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for joining us. Y'all go. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next Sunday.